seven of the Shakespeare's the Shakespeare Scribes of Florida. Our brief stay in the region was not total disappointment. The town councillors had authorized the sum of eighty shillings to be given the company, a reward, as it were, not of were for not performing our pledge. Mr. Hemmings was obviously consulted and would, I believe, have turned the money down had not Shakespeare's practical sense prevailed. John, he said, I'm afraid we can't afford to be overly scrupulous. This will pay for a week's lodging. So we took the money, but let the coin, tested with the teeth for its gold content, it left a bitter taste in our mouths. We moved on the Bingstow, where, up to our dismay, we found the situation much the same. The mayor here seemed less concerned about spreading the plague, though, than about offending the church. Clergy of the city, he said, were preaching that the source of plague deaths was not corrupted air, but corrupted morals, and were signaling out the bands of traveling players as purely evil influence. Apparently, the Earl of Swexman had performed a guide hall a few weeks prior, handbills advertising, advertising, Clementi, a matini of the malcontent were still stuck to buildings and trees. The mayor said that shortly after their departure, the number of plague deaths had begun to rise. But that doesn't mean that the Swexmen were responsible for the plague, protested Mr. Hemmings, so upset that his sweater was so surfacing. The mayor refused to listen to the reason. Again, we were offered money to move on. This time, the bribe was only 60 shillings. Well, sniffed Will Sly indignantly. I would certainly have thought we had amongst us at least five pounds worth of corruption. Two days later, in Newbury, we encountered the same altitude and with even less reason. There had been no plague to speak of, and the authorities were determined to keep it that way. This time, Mr. Hemmings refused to accept the paltry sum offered us not to play. Fie on them! We've a license to perform, and perform we will, whether they like it or no. I had seldom seen him so cross. Normally, he was as tolerant as even-tempered as Sander. He turned to the rest of the sharers with a look that dared them to challenge him. Are you with me? Mr. Armin held up his hands as if in surrender. Mr. Phillips nodded quickly. Mr. Shakespeare toyed thoughtfully 
hid his earring and then smiled slightly. You're right. You're right, John. We're not beggars. We're players. Let us not play according to someone else's script. They'll never let us use the town hall, Mr. Phillips said. Then we'll set up our stage in the street, Mr. Hemming declared. While we hired men unloaded most of our equipment from the care wares and stored it in the granary of the inn, we three princesses were sent down the town with pre-printed handbills announcing a performance of Mr. Shakespeare's Love Flavors Lost. On each sheet we had printed in ink two o'clock today on the square. Some we handed out to shopkeepers and passerby. Others we tacked to trees and fences and sides of buildings. We spent most of the morning getting our lines fixed in our heads. Though we had performed the play many times at the Bow, this was special Gypsy Players version, with all the excess parts trimmed away to make it suitable for traveling. Even though Mr. Shakespeare had reduced the number of speaking roles from 19 to 13, there were but 10 of us in the company. So, some of us had to double up. Sam, for example, donned a wig to dress to play Maria, and then doffed to play Ma. I played both Jaquita, my usual role, Rosaline, the part I usually played by Sandra. Luckily for me, the two of them never appeared in the same scene. I believe Sal Pelvey Watts was the hardest. Though Ned Shakespeare was new to the company, he had at least acted with an adult company before. Sal Pelvey had not, nor had he ever had a part in one of Mr. Shakespeare's plays. Words he had been given but two scant weeks to con half a dozen different roles. In my early days with the company, when I was coaxed into playing the part of Ophelia in Helmet before I was truly ready, my friend Julia had made certain I that I did not disperse myself. She had gone over and over my lines with me until they stuck in my head. Though I did not care for Saul Pelvey's company, I felt it would be right for me to follow Julia's example. I found Saul Pelvey sitting alone in the corner of the courtyard with his eyes closed. He was silently mouthing his lines. Excuse me, I said. I thought perhaps you could use some help. His eyes opened slowly. He turned to me. Was he turned on me? Was distracted, irritable. Help? He said. For what? I gestured with a practical script he held in one hand. Why will your part, of course? Oh no! I need no help. He closed his eyes again. 
and if I ever did, I would certainly ask someone more competent to give them. I I had not truly expected him to be grateful, nor, but neither had I anticipated that he would insult me. How would you can, I demanded. How competent I am, or am not. You've never seen me before. You're quite, wo- you're quite wrong, he replied calmly. I saw you only last month in Titus Andromeda. You were, how can I put it kindly, weary. He was not a violent person, but if I had a sword in my hand that moment, I would surely have thrust it through his heart, or at least considered it. When I recountered the scene for Sam, he shook his head in disgust. The lad has a bad case of swollen head, all right. I recommend we give him a dose of the same medicine we gave to Jack. And several times in past, when Jack had gone beyond the bounds of his duties as a hired man and insisted on pointing our shortcomings, he we had retaliated during a performance by replacing some curfew cue line with a line of our own invention. It was like throwing a lead weight to a weight who could not swim. We always rescued him even eventually, but not until he get, had gone under retirement age. The notion of giving Sal Palvi the same treatment was appeasing. There was no doubt that he deserved it, but I re- re- reluctantly shook my head. Why not? protested Sam. It will be great fun. Because, Mr. Armin said we should take make him welcome. Yes, well, that doesn't mean we're obliged to cheerfully accept his insults. I, n- I never insulted you. Let it pass, all right? It's not worth creating ill will over. Sam rolled his eyes. You sound like Sander. Good, I said. I meant to. As two o'clock approached, we set up our makeshift stage atop the wagon bed and then returned to the inn to get into our stage, into our costumes. As na- as usual, Sal Palvi was not among us. I expect he he had the nasty case of stage stomach, said Mr. Arm, and is somewhere vomiting his victuals. A little fear is of a good fellow, said Mr. Phillips. It keeps him from getting overconfident. As we headed for the town square, Sal Palvi caught up with us. He certainly did not look as he spent the last hour or so pucking and agonizing. He looked, in fact, as cool as a cowcumber. Don't tell me, Sam said. You got dressed in the stable. Yes, I'm accustomed to having the modicum of privacy. Weren't you afraid the horses would look at you? Sam teased. Saul Pelvey ignored him. I'll suppose at the Blackfriars you had your own private tearing room, 
So Pelvi smiled smugly. As a matter of fact, I did. A crowd of a hundred or more townfolk had gathered before the wagon stage, drawn by the notes of Mr. Phillips' spin whistle, while the rest of the company went behind the strict curtain we had suspended at the rear of the stage, we apprentices passed along the audience with our caps in our hands, calling, One penny, please, or rather Sam and I did. Saul Palvi stood off to one side, silent and unmoving, with his cap held in both hands, as the though he had found the prospect of actually soliciting money to to the meaning. Other thing he is not accustomed to do to I expect Sam muttered. As I reached the rear of the door I heard commotion from down the street and glanced up to see a body of eight or nine men striding pre- purposefully towards us, wearing a grim looks, wearing grim looks on their faces and carrying cudgels on their hands. Gog's blood, I breathed. They're coming to run us off. I pushed back through the crowd, raising cries of indignation, and scrambled around the rear of the stage where the players were waiting to make their entrances. There's a bunch of what with blasters coming? I bluntered between gasps. I think it's the catchpoles. Constables, you mean? Mr. Hemmings called, said Mr. Hemmings calmly. I'll speak to him. He'll step, he stepped through the curtain. I peered over the edge of the stage. The band of constables were dis- dispersing the crowd, yelling, Go home! And brandishing their clubs. Gentlemen, Mr. Hemmings called in his best pilot voice. Over the clamor of the audience, this is lawful, is a lawful assembly. We are a licensed theatrical company. If you question that, we have here a degree issued by our patron, Lord Cobham. He withdrew the paper from his wallet and began to read in a voice as melodious, as dramatic, as though he had been reading the player's speech from Hamlet. Hamlet. To all justices, mayors, sheriffs, constables, hair, uh, head boars, the other officers, greeting. Now you that I have licensed these my servants and their associates to freely exercise the art of playing comedies, tragedies, and histories. He got no further, for two of the catchpoles had climbed into the stage and seized him by the arm. Despite his protests and those of the audience, they dragged him to the edge of the stage. Not an easy task, for Mr. Hemmings was not nearly as old or as frail as he appeared in his guise of Ferdinand, King Navarre. One of the constables cried, Stop struggling, old man! 
he raised his cudgel. But before I could descend, Mr. Armin was through the curtains and across the board. As quick as a dog can lick a dish, he had Mr. Hemming's rapier out of its sheath, pointing at the constable's third floor. Though the sword was blunted, it would have gone badly for the man had he not let his cudgel drop. His fellow officer, taken aback by this turn of events, had loosened his grip. Mr. Hemmings elbowed him sharply in the stomach, and he toppled from the platform, waving his arms wildly. Now the rest of the catapults were swarming into the stage, scowling and shouting in anger. Mr. Armin boosted his adversary off the apron, and he and Mr. Hemmings backed away into the ranks of the other players, who had now made an entrance and maze with their stage swords drawn. The battle was joined.